Thank you all for joining us today. We're joined with uh, two guests. We have Dr. Prabhjot Singh. Uh, he received his doctorate from San Jose State University in Education. He's the man behind the very popular page, Free Punjab, many of you have seen on Instagram. Uh, we have Gursharanjit Singh, who's a co-founder of the California Sikh Youth Alliance. He's also a volunteer with United Sikh Movement, very active in his local community here in Northern California. So it's great to have both of you guys here today. We're going to talk about a couple of things um, that were on our mind, that, that are going through the Panth, that are going through sort of our California Sangat here. And sort of the first question I have, and this kind of leads into sort of your work um, and Gursharanjit, your work as well. It's... Um, how can you know six contribute to the Sangash? Because when I think about as organizationally in our organization, I think the number one question that we get from young people is how can we contribute? And in, in my thinking, it always starts locally in the Sangat. You know, how how do we assess that we're making progress, right? How do you assess in your local Sangat, your friends, your family that we're making progress to- towards the bunt that we want to see? So I guess that. That's my first question. You, Gusharanjit, you can start off, and then Dr. Prabhjot Singh, please follow up uh, about how can we build a strong Sangath? What does it mean to build uh, a resilient community? What are the Gurdwaras doing their part when it comes to building those communities? Are Sangath people holding uh, Gurdwara and these institutions accountable? So these are the kind of you know questions I had, and you can talk maybe talk about your work as well with the California Sikh Youth Alliance and how that informs your opinions on this. You have to learn how you're going to be through who you aspire to be. And if your aspirations of how you want to exist are seen through a Sikhi lens, then that will dictate kind of how you operate your day. First thing is Punjabi. That's huge. Punjabi Sikhi, Punjabi Padiye, Punjabi Samjiye. That's key. You have to find direction from which places do the Indian state want to separate you from. Punjabi is a huge one. Speaking Punjabi in Punjab gets you penalized inside the schools. That means there's a concerted effort to make sure that the people of Punjab don't know Punjabi. Now, why is that important? The moment you separate yourself from Punjabi, a lot of Punjabi is understanding naturally what Gurbani is saying. And so when you separate from Punjabi, you naturally create an obstacle into understanding Gurbani. And the Gurbani is what is going to teach you stability. It's what's going to teach you resistance. It's going to, it, it is the source of truth that is going to fight against an oppressive nature. Whether that's the Indian state, whether that's the British Raj, whether that's the Mughal Raj, it's Gurbani that's going to be it. And so Gurbani says that that the way that a pillar holds up a structure, that the Guru's Shabad is like that pillar, but for your mind. And so that Gurbani is what is going to connect you and create your resistance. So I feel like creating your Sangat a lot of times starts with yourself. Is that you seek to find the company of people that you want to be like. Now, if you are trying to get involved in a path that is more spiritual, that is more Sikhi based, then you are naturally going to rid yourselves of the people and the Sangat that takes you away from that. So your aspiration in the beginning, first and foremost, has to be something that 
is Sikhi oriented. And as long as you find your role models in people that are Sikh, in people that have fought Sangarshas, in people that have, you know, rebelled against oppressive regimes, then you're in the right. I feel like you're going in the right direction. No, that's a, and I feel like if we take it from the personal level to the community level, and we talk about our Gurdwaras, right, and holding Gurdwaras accountable, it's interesting because I, I'm going to share with you like a small story of, of a Gurdra here in Sacramento, and some of you might know who I'm talking about, but they built this amazing Gurdra, incredible Gurdra. I think anyone who comes there says, you know, and I was thinking about it a little bit, and I, when I went inside a beautiful hall and a beautiful, you know, chandeliers, and, and I noticed that there wasn't a single room in the entire Gurdra, right? There was one committee room, but there was no room. It was like a, you know, probably two, three million, four million dollar project, and there's not a single room. And I think that represents the psychology of the community right now, right? Mm -hmm. Especially when it comes to Gordura managements. Their psychology is large halls, uh, essentially wedding venues, right? And there's no effort to make sure that the next generation has the tools, has the facilities to, to advance their Sikhi, or at least learn about Sikhi, right? And I think it's about holding these Gordas accountable as well. So how do you see that in terms of our institutions? Do you feel like they're working for us? I think in the California context, we see some Gordas doing a good job, and they're providing those tools for, for children, for people who want to teach, and other Gordas are lacking, right? So how, yeah. how do you feel about that? Across, yes, sir, uh, definitely. Across California, at least from in the diaspora, we've seen that there's a few Gordas, like you mentioned, that do have these extracurricular activities for students to come away from home, learn Gurbani, Santya, Kirtan, Gatka, right? Maybe implementing each of those select things uh, one day of the week. Because as of right now, Gornal Gordar has been relegated to going is, is once a week that That's what going to the Gordar has now been relegated to. And there, we need more ways to incentivize at least Sikh youth to return to these Gordaras. One of which um, we just mentioned is adding these so-called extracurriculars. We want our Sikh youth to, you know, go attend basketball games, sporting events, and functions. But we can make Gordwaras that safe haven, that safe space for such activities to flourish as well. And yeah, and um, I think alongside that is that when kids are growing up, you want them to have imagery and, you know, create plant some sort of seed inside of them that what's happening at my Gurdwara. Now, if you grow up at a Gurdwara where there's pictures of shaheeds in the langar hall, as you're eating langar as a two-year-old, three-year-old, four-year-old, you're looking up at those. And even if you don't ask about them, somewhere in your mind that is implanted. And at some point in your life, you'll begin to ask, why are these people up there? And if it's not the shaheeds of 1984, it's afterwards or it's before. Like, there have been there has been so much sacrifice put into the institutions of Sikhi and planting those seeds. I think at a very minimum, that should be a Gurdwara's job, is saying, am I creating Sikhs that are going to live the essence of Sikhi? Or am I creating Sikhs that are just going to assimilate where they are and just be good citizens? And I'm going to tell them that, you know, just give out langar and that is your idea of Sikhi. Or am I going to teach them that your very existence is being threatened right now? Am I going to teach them that your genocide is still happening? And so creating these types of institutions and this methodology where the youth 
where the younger generation or even the older generation can understand what is truly happening. And we see this happening a lot with people that are migrating from Punjab to begin with. Like at the first point when they come from Punjab, they're like, we just, we didn't know anything that was happening in Punjab because there's a sort of fabricated method in silencing what the real narrative is. But the youth that is growing up here that has never had those kind of curtains, that veil that's placed upon their eyes, what resources do they have? And I think A, can be having pictures of shaheeds in your langar halls, these websites, having speakers that are relevant to them, having uh, people that can speak to them and, and connect with them. And there's more than enough people in in the world right now that can create that spark in six. So committees should have that role. Yeah, no, I think even back to what Gosharanjit was saying about, you know, Gatka schools and uh, Gatka camps, Santia classes, I think these are the metrics that Gurdara should use to see if there's progress, success, right? if, if their progress is happening, right? Like, you know, and for us, I think when it even comes to Gurdara committees or I think the general psychology of the community is, you know, if there's like 10,000 people at the Nagarkirtan, if this, this much langar is eaten on a single day, that's a success, right? But, okay, how many people are showing up to the Kirtan class? How many people are got their class? Is there even, are these classes even available, right? Yeah. So these basic things, I think the psychology has to change. And secondly, the thing you said about the imagery of the Shaheeds, right? It's so important that uh, the Shaheeds and their sacrifice lives on, right? And if there's no mechanism for someone to find out, then these kids will have no way to find out. And I think it's about channeling their curiosity sometimes, right? Like, it's not, it, just ha by having those pictures there and eating there, I think that sort of cultivates a sense of, um, I'm a part of this lineage, you know, and that maybe generates a type of curiosity. And I'll add one point real quick. Our parameter of success currently is how nice the building is, how big the building is, how many people ate langar, how large is your nagar kirtan. Um, and our parameters of success need to change from that to how active are we as a community when our community is attacked? Yeah. How do we respond? Are we effective in that? Or do we have a $10 million gordora that moves forward? And this is not necessarily just the fault of the last generation. I know we like to portray it as that because it's, uh, it's easily appears that way. But a lot of the last generation is coming with a survival mentality. Yeah. And the fact that we're having these conversations is also a tribute to the work that they have put in to some extent. So how do we keep moving uh, the, the, the bar forward, move it up as a next generation? So part of the ownership and the accountability has to be on our generation as well. Yeah, and this is great because it kind of falls into our second topic here, and that's about social media. Because I think when we, our lives are influenced not only by our sangats that are real and then we go to the Gordas, but it's also influenced by the stuff we see in this new paradigm, right? It's our parents' generation didn't have social media. Um, I, I, and I remember one professor saying this, you know, during the Arab Spring, they said, you know, social media and, you know, Twitter specifically, it caused an entire revolution. And the people, I think liberals across the world or people who uh, appreciated revolution across the world, they were celebrating this. But at the same time, you know, social media also has that switch where you switch off and the entire thing shuts down. I think six yeah. have kind of tried to kind of experience that a little bit as well. So maybe, maybe Dr. Prabhjot, you can speak to this first about what do you think are like 
the the benefits of social media and like in terms of pushing back against those state narratives that are so obviously incredibly false and misleading and dangerous for six but also the stuff that you've dealt with in your work as a sort of in social media that you've seen the censorship happen have you found ways for us to be more resilient when it comes to our narratives on social media what yeah. we're building there so maybe you can speak to that a little bit i mean ironically enough part of being strong on social media is understanding who your enemy is and right now uh, we've seen reports come out that the Indian state has thousands of Twitter bots that exist that are there solely to retweet stuff that is the Indian narrative and, you know, cuss out anything that is the narrative of the opposite. But all of that is fake. So if you optically look at it, you say, man, this guy just said that we are terrorists and he got retweeted 10,000 times. And optically, you may feel like, man, my enemy is so huge. But it's so simple to create a bot. And when you're a government that has billions of dollars at its disposal, that is so easy to do. Right. And that is happening across the board. That's happening on Twitter. That's happening on Instagram. That's happening on TikTok. So while there are benefits of information circulation, which is a, really what a lot of social media provides, it provides a creative outlet which is right now what the Indian state does not have. They do not have an effective narrative. They're using the same old recycled narrative with a newer generation that already sees through it. That you're calling our people terrorists, but we know that these are the same people that are giving out langar, that are giving out free education, that are treating everyone equally. So how can they be the violent terrorists that you're telling us they are? So a lot of the diaspora a lot of the western world understands that india today hindustan now all those propaganda channels are exactly that they're there to just peddle uh, a false concocted narrative so social media can be powerful in information dissemination it can be powerful in how people hear what they hear but at the same time understanding who your enemy is the enemy right now has alliances with every social media giant. And they are there actively to suppress your voice. And that is not the only battlefront. That is one battlefront in a multitude of battlefronts. So we may think, man, my post didn't do well. Or um, I'm getting cussed out. Or I'm getting death threats, which happens to me regularly. Like, that is just a part of who the enemy is. The Indian state right now wants to eliminate Sikhi, it wants to eliminate Punjab, and, it, and now with, with assassinations, everything happening in the diaspora, we understand that our activism matters. So while it is powerful, it can also be uh, kind, of, kind of like hitting a dead end. So that is where your Sikhi comes. That is when your uh, historical knowledge comes. When you know that tanks were approaching and Santaji went in front of the tanks and shot at them. When you know that Akali Fula Singh went into a battle of thousands of Mughals with just a few hundred Singhs, and he took bullets to the chest and to the leg and died there. So if someone censors my voice on social media, or if someone bullies me, or if someone cusses me out, that's the least of my problems. Yeah. So having that historical perspective is huge when it comes to any sort of activism. Yeah, and 
maybe you can talk about the, the media landscape, because I know there's a lot of young Sikhs who might be interested in research, might be entering university, and they want to learn about these things. And I think there's this idea that, you know, if, you, if I search something and I go to Google News, you know, Hindustan Times, India Today, like these are more credible. They, there's this feeling that there's, these are more credible than your average sort of Twitter poster. That's a yeah. bot, right? And I think that's huge, too, when it comes to <coughs> someone who's, who's looking at the Sikh community and they say, okay, how do I do research? It's so difficult because what even the most credible Indian outlets or the so-called most credible Indian outlets like India Today, they're winning awards for their journalism, right? right? And yet the, the, the facts that they present are so like blatantly untrue. And you, maybe you can talk about the, the sort of India High Commission, you know, f- uh, that was peddled by the Hindustan Times where they said grenades were thrown at the, right. at the embassy. Maybe you can talk about that. And th- that kind of shows how absurd their journalism is. Yeah, I think this goes in a couple ways. Indian journalism or Indian propaganda, which is really what it is, works in that way, is that they work to make you feel guilty. So, for example, when Deep Siddhu went to the Red Fort, the popular narrative was, these people uh, ruined the farmers' protest. If this wouldn't have happened, then the farmers' protest would have been more successful. And a large portion of six almost said, we gave them a reason. And they got stuck in that. They got self uh, stuck in pointing at each other and self-blaming. But, for example, with, with what you said is that they published a report that grenades were thrown at a high commission. And it was completely false. So who, who do you blame now? You can't say to anyone, oh, you can't say to your own community that it's our fault. They vandalized their own mantras. Right? They bombed uh, Air India Flight 182 to blame on six. They uh, killed Hindus in the 80s and 90s and said names of Karku Singhs to try and blame Sanpindrali. So they're doing all of these things and they're trying to get you to, to get in this cycle of a blame game. You get in this cycle of blaming yourself, and it's so self-defeating is that it's almost something that's penetrated our psyche, this inferiority complex, where it's like anything bad that happens, it's somehow our fault. Oh yeah. So that victim mentality has penetrated our psyche. And I think as we have conversations like this, we kind of break through that in that, no, that's not our fault. Um, we do not deserve to die just because we're not called to. That is not, that is not our ideal. We don't deserve to, to have our resources diverted because we don't believe in Guru Granth Sahib. Like, we're not worthy of dying just because of this. Now, that can be a contributing factor in how we break through it, but that cannot be the sole reason. Yeah, no, and if you want to speak to social media too, just on the maybe social media versus you know, organizing on the ground since you have experience there, how there's benefits to both of these. Like, Sikhs should be informed as well as they should have their own Sangats, right? And I was going to say, going to your point about build, building Sangat, actually, um, in regards to informational, informational dis, uh, oh my goodness. Dissemination. Dissemination. Yeah. Or in regards to information dissemination as well, another underlying point that we can reflect on is building Sangat online. There's not oftentimes where people that live in the middle of nowhere per se um, you know throughout the country have access to sangha on the ground in, in the gurdwaras or in their local schools or their circles 
whatever have you. So it's very important that these online forums exist in which students can get together, especially at the college level, where we saw in COVID especially too, where there's these um, online classes that people can take. USM during the COVID pandemic had provided a, a multitude of such programs. They had uh, online with Yala in which they taught uh, Keith and it was Rara Saab together, Jabdi Saab together. It was that online sangat, growing up that brotherhood and that sisterhood, which everyone subconsciously craves, right? Everyone craves to be accepted. And for those people that don't normally have access to that, it was, it was a way for them to not only feel accepted, but also grow in their seeking and as an individual. Yeah, no, that's huge. And just to, I think the last part that I wanted to talk about in, in the podcast was sort of recent news. We saw the assassination of, of Bayeftar Sinkanda, who's a UK-based activist, very sort of close associate to Bay Amrit Singh. You know, a couple of days later, we saw Bay Hardeep Singh Nijar gunned down in the Gurdura. Um, Bay Hardeep Singh Nijar was uh, a volunteer of Six for Justice, the organization that's doing the referendum across the world. He was also... Uh, the president of the Gurdwara where he was gunned down is one of the larger Gurdwaras in, in the BC area. And I think my initial reaction to that was, you know, I think there's a lot said about the diaspora and its role. And, it, you know, I think the Indians say that, you know, the diaspora just yells and it doesn't matter what they say. I think there's sort of, in even our own psychology, there's kind of this insecurity that what we do doesn't matter, right? Yeah. It, it, it sometimes feels like, you know, we're talking about these issues that are critical to Punjab, our homeland, our people, our, our, our connection to there. And then it's kind of invalidated because we feel like, you know, progress doesn't happen or sometimes we feel like what we do doesn't matter. And I think this kind of, if there's any positive out of these news is that it feels like what we're doing is hurting the Indian government, right? And not only is it hurting them, you know, they definitely see diaspora, the free thinkers in the diaspora as a threat, right? And Dr. Prabhupada, how do you feel about, you know, those two events that took place this in, in this month and how Sikhs should respond to it? How c- should we interpret what has happened uh, in, in those two places? You know, is there ways we can prepare in the future? And sort of what does this mean for us? Yeah, so um, two Sikhs, UK-based, Canada-based, were assassinated by the Indian state. That's significant in that this is the first time outside of you know aside from pakistan that the indian state has reached to silence six aside from the censorship and the usual norms of what what has been done the way to view this i think is referring back to what you said this inferiority complex that we have within us that what we do doesn't matter and actually it's propagated by the indian state and when they say, Tusi fera India ake kalinigalakarde, why are you talking in Canada? Why are you uh, talking in the US making this noise? And it's like, okay, if it truly didn't matter, why are you contact- contacting the governments of every major country trying to stop referendum votes? Why is it when there's a protest in front of the Indian consulate, you guys know well ahead of time and are already ready with your propaganda streams? Why is it that we are assassinating people from uh, different countries, Sikhs from different countries, Khalistani Sikhs from different countries? And the reason is all of it matters. We, they try to convince us that it doesn't matter, and we try to convince ourselves that just to be complicit, that's a word that I use a lot, is that to justify our complicity, to justify our lack of involvement, we say, this doesn't really matter anyways, why do it? And so the problem with that is, in the midst of all that, 
they're eliminating singular voices. And a message I think that should be portrayed is that once you assassinate these people, this is not a community that gets silenced through assassinations. Yeah. This is a community that looks in the face of death and laughs. Hmm. This, is, this is our history. Most. This is our Gurbani. makes us Amar. It makes us immortal. And that's the ideals that we move forward with. So you can try to silence one of us or two of us or a hundred of us and revoke visas and, you know, do whatever methodology you can. But at the end of the day, all that does is provide more fertilizer, more fuel to the fire to say that our cause is, in fact, justified. And I think if you support Khalistan publicly and, you know, you advocate for it, you have to remain vigilant. You have to know that the Indian state is after you. And the second thing is, buy something like life insurance. You know, that once the Indian state does eliminate you, that in the background you have something set aside for your family members. You have something set aside for the punt. Right? So these are steps that we can take that we have access to that perhaps we didn't have access to in the beginning. So diasporic activism definitely matters. And the Indian state understands this. While we divide ourselves, we say that uh, the Indian state looks at all of them in a bunch. If you look at Delhi 1984, we commonly say Delhi Alisik, Delhi Alisik. But when the Indian government distributes addresses to go get them killed off, they don't say Dilli Ali Sikh. They don't say Punjab Ali Sikh. They don't say Amritali Sikh. They say Kada Hega. Je Kada Hega Tamaru. So that's something that they understand. And they try to, they, they bring up the divides within us that this person thinks differently, so you should be against them. No. We can have differences in opinion while still understanding who the larger target is, who the enemy is. And that is a step that we have to take. We have to put our pride aside. This is why I say Gurmat again and again. When you understand the ego, it's opposed to that. So this is why connecting to Gurmat is so essential. You get, you have the understanding from an eagle eye view that this person is not my enemy. Yeah, he may wake up later than me. Yeah, he may eat meat. Yeah, he may be different from me. But he's not my enemy. The enemy is a person that wants to eliminate all of us. And for right now, the genocide that Sikhs are going through, the enemy is the Indian state. So that's something that we have to understand. Yeah, and even to the point of does what the diaspora does matter, I think a lot of young people, they ask, like, how can we contribute, right? And I think that's a question you've probably got a lot of times. Young people, they hear about these news that happened, and they're asked, right? And I think it's important to, to know that there's not a single way to contribute, right? There's like, and you talked about how in your Instagram, you know, you're very creative with the way you post things, right? And how we can use creativity to our benefit. And you can use things that you are good at to contribute to the Sangash, yeah. right? And it could be through the arts. It could be through poetry. It could be through, you know, you might be good at writing. And maybe you, you make uh, art that's good, right? So maybe you can speak to that a little bit about how, like, you channeled your own creativity sure. when it comes to creating some of these posts. <coughs> because I think there's a lot of creatives out there yeah. who feel like, oh, I, don't, I might not know enough to speak yeah. on it. Yeah. Or they might have some insecurities there. But sort of push them over the... Uh, Edge and say, look, you can contribute. Find the yeah. medium. Yeah. yeah, and and that's that's something I say very regularly is find your role. So if you are a creative, 
or if you have a lot of money, or if you're a lawyer, or if you're you know, in any profession, how do you contribute to your community? Or do you work singularly for yourself? Are you just engrossed in a capitalistic mindset? Because when you come to a foreign country like the US or Canada or anything, your first priority is the financial establishment of yourself. But you have to understand the trajectory that that goes through. You come, you get rich, maybe your kids go to good schools, your kids have kids, you become grandparents, and then you die. What will be the impact that you left on earth? And the impact you will create by understanding that, what is my role? You have to look at other oppressed communities in the world. There, if you're from an oppressed community and you have a celebrity who is not speaking out for you, well, then they're probably just engrossed in the capitalism. So how do you fight that wave? How do you fight that tsunami that's approaching you and that is capitalism? And find your role if you can contribute in any way. I'm not creative very much at all, actually. I'm not technologically sound. I am very challenged in a lot of these things. But I had to push the envelope from my page in whatever ways I could to understand that what is my contribution going to be. And I, and I hope, Maharaj Kirpa, that this is not my only contribution, but... What can I do sitting in my home and to understand that I'm not complicit in the violence and the impression of my people? As my people are oppressed, there is constantly a voice. And when we say, it doesn't matter what you say, oh, I only have 50 followers, it doesn't matter what you say. Why is the Indian government silencing our voices? Why is it blocking our pages from being accessed in Punjab? Whether it be Twitter, TikTok, YouTube, whatever it is. Why are they blocking it? Because your voice does matter. So they understand our potential, but we don't understand our potential. So kind of recycling back to that point is that use whatever medium, if you are a creator, if you're a comedian, if, you are, if you're really good at photography, find ways to incorporate your people, your community, and specifically the oppression of your community into your work. Because if not, you're just going to be another leaf in the wind that's going to blow this way and that way and be totally manipulated by the structures that you're within. So Sikhi teaches us that we are separate from that structure. It teaches us that we are part of that structure, that we are part of humanity and sarbat. We are part of that, but we are also uniquely different from that. How do we understand that role and how do we take advantage of it? So find your role. Connect to Gurmat. Yeah, I just want to uh, piggyback off what Dr. Prabhjit was saying. We need to rid ourselves of that fear psychosis that we're so heavily involved with and, you know, find ourselves hollowed in within. Um, as going back to the point he mentioned about uh, mediums, right? Different artists, different creators have, there's so many different mediums, especially in today's generation where we have the online social media aspect, we have on the ground grassroots activism, community advocacy, uh, different mediums as writing, reading, contributing any facet we can just to um, resist the, the oppression, the suppression, the repression that our people are currently facing. Yeah, and just to maybe, and this is the last question I wanted to ask, since you've dealt with censorship a little bit more yeah. than I think a lot of people, I think even Americans have this idea about, you know, sort of the titans of like free speech, you know, the Elon Musks, the Zuckerbergs. I think there's this there's this idea about these people that, yeah. you know, these guys believe in free speech, but the reality is so different. Like they yeah. have they care about the Indian market, you know, it's mm -hmm. a billion probably billion plus dollar market, you yeah. know, it's a billion people. Mm -hmm. 
at the end of the day, it's profit over people, right? Yeah. And that's very clear. And I think maybe you've dealt with this because, you know, I think you've went back and forth maybe with certain tech organizations about this. Yeah. Maybe speak to that a little bit, how, like, it's incredible that people can say something about Elon Musk, that he's some sort of titan of free speech when the reality is the exact opposite, right? Yeah. That it's clear that they are ready to sacrifice any type of uh, sort of democratic belief that they have in order to access these markets. Yeah, and th the censorship that you refer to, I've experienced across all platforms. I'm currently banned in India from a lot of my pages being accessed in, in India, in Punjab specifically. Geoband, right? Yeah, yeah. geoband. And not only that, is that once you, for example, I'll talk about TikTok. Once they take down your post, you get a strike. And they can, right now, Amrit Balting is labeled as a hateful, violent figure. So anything you post about Amrit Balting on TikTok it's will get taken down immediately. And then you get, a, and then you get a, a, a violation and three violations and they take your page off. And so these are the ways in which your voice is being censored, in which your story is being silenced. And let's look at it a little bit of a macro level. Social media has been prevalent for 10 to 15 years. And they've chosen in the trajectory that they're on to choose profit over people. In that you can say, hey, we're going to speak as freely as we can in India. That's what we heard Elon Musk say. I mean, Zuckerberg has just completely, from, from I want to say day one, has been complicit, you know, compl complicit in it. Right. Elon Musk with Twitter has you know, presented itself as this beacon of free speech, but uh, you, you heard in a in a talk immediately outside of when he met Modi is that we're going to speak as freely as we can without losing India as a market. Yeah. So it, it it will always be profit over people. But another thing I will say is a lot of Western politicians refuse to associate with India just because of how heinous and inhumane its record is. Yeah. So this love story that the West has with India right now is very temporary. I don't see people owning up to the current prime minister being banned in separate countries for human rights violations. I don't see them ignoring that for too long. And I think that will reduce their credibility in the long term in, in the public's eyes. So I think Obama referred to this as well, is that if you continue to marginalize minorities as Modi has done, the nation will pull apart. And, and India will pull apart into many different nations because there's so many different separatist movements going on there. Yeah. So the censorship is just, uh, the, the social media censorship is a mild form of the censorship that they have been engaged in. Yeah. The way that they censored our people in the 80s, 90s was Killed to them. physically abduct them and extrajudicially murder them. Yeah. And that lasted for a period of 15 years. And then they had, if you are going to say anything about it, you end up in jails. Yeah. And we're seeing that happen even right now. Yeah. And if you come out of jail and you refuse to stop talking about it, then you get assassinated. This is the, the trajectory, the methodology in which the Indian state uses to silence us. And it doesn't, it's not going to work for very long. So consistency, engagement with with Gurmukhi, with, with Sikhi, with Gurbani, that is key because censorship and, and even death. I mean, Sikh see Shahidi is a blessing. Yeah. We say that if we die for the Panth, that is the ultimate blessing. Yeah. 
how do you fight someone who's unafraid of death? And the Indian state understands this. This is why they would rather silence you and assassinate you instead of have the majority of your people understand. So the Indian state understands this to an extent. It seems like they forget very often in that, oh, maybe if we assassinate this guy, it'll silence people. Now, for example, you assassinate Hardeep Singh Nijar in Canada. Maybe if 200,000 people are going to vote, now 500,000 people are going to vote for Khalistan. And so you are consistently shooting yourself in the foot. If they were silent from day one, maybe naturally we would have forgotten. But it's impossible. After you attack Darbar Sahib, that is the nail in the coffin. You've crossed all lines. So after that is just our movement for sovereignty. After that is just Khalistan. And until then... Until Khalistan, it is just going to be a period of struggle. And we've struggled for centuries in our past, before we've gotten to Raj. And so this is just another period in our... So looking at it from a larger image, it's not something to be discouraged about. Yeah. If your post gets taken down, or if only 10 people like it, or whatever happens, it's nothing to be discouraged about. At a grand scheme, in a, in a, in a macro level, this is a very small problem, and it's just part of the process. Yeah, and I think that's a that's a great way to end it because, you know, I think when you think about our community, like, you know, we're a displaced community, you know, a community of refugees, our parents fled violence, right? And I think the only thing we can ask for is, like, you know, if you're someone who's a young person and you look at the Langar Hall and you're looking at these pictures and you don't know, you know, what they mean, I think it's so important to, you know, there's so many resources out there for you to learn and start your journey. I think a lot of folks, even when it comes to, you know, we talked about Gurmukhi, we talked about Punjabi, they feel like they're too far gone, you know? It's like, yeah. they can be 25, and it's, and I can tell a personal story of myself, too, is like, I was, you know, 11, 12, and my parents were very worried about me not knowing Punjabi, right? Yeah. And uh, they took me to Punjab, and I think that's really important, too, is like taking, maybe planning a trip to Punjab, right? Yeah. You know, if you're able to go, you know, we go to a lot of places for vacation, but to visit the Gurustan and all of those places, I think that's important. And like, I think that's the message we gave on Visaki as well from our organization is, you know, in the future, you know, in, you should think about going to Punjab and maybe meeting your Siddhar there or meeting folks there from your family and visiting these Tarm uh, Tarmakistans. And that yeah. can help build your connection. And yeah. it's never too late to build your connection, right? You can be 25, you can be 30. It doesn't yeah. matter how old you are. The bunt is always calling you, right? And it, 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 it's always there in open arms for you to come. So I want to thank both of you for coming here today and uh, being in, in, in the studio. And, you know, we thank all the viewers for listening. And um, oh, till next time, Waiguji Ka Khalsa, Waiguji.